You can turn, um, you can turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3 is where we'll be today. The title of the message is Let Us Pray. And I titled this for two reasons. The first is because I think this is really funny. Um, you get the pun, you get it? The tiger. This is Sheer Khan from the Jungle Book, Sinister Tiger. Um, anyway, the, the real reason uh, is because Mike is going to spend a lot of time talking about some really awful, um, awful people in his community who instead of helping, teaching and helping, all they're doing is taking advantage of people, preying upon them, and ruining their lives. And that's the, that's the focus of God's anger and frustration throughout this book. His people are supposed to be a certain way, and they're not. And so to get into this, uh, I wanted to bring in an illustration from my other, uh, my other life um, doing insurance fraud stuff. Um, there is like a, there, there's this whole industry of um, sociologists and criminologists wondering, you know, why do people do bad things? Is it because they were raised badly? Is it just because they're bad? You know, inherently bad apples, good apples. Um, the Christian story says it's because of sin, but I mean, there's all these other theories like sociologically, like why do people, why did he do this and she didn't when they have similar backgrounds, the same, they work in the same place, but he did it, she didn't. Um, one theory for white collar kind of crime um, that is popular and that seems to make a lot of sense is what's called the fraud triangle to explain white collar crimes committed by middle class people, right? There, without thinking about it, there's this difference in our head between street crime and white collar crime. And without, maybe we wouldn't say this out loud, but when, you know, uh, homeless encampments burn or when there's thievery and looting or carjackings and homicides, we might think, oh, well, you know, those people, those people. They're not respectable like us because we're, um, we're not those kind of people. We're not the lower class sort of people. And so there's always been this conundrum in people, this disconnect in people's minds as to, well, we can understand why they do that kind of crime and rob convenience stores and carjack people. But why did she do this? She has a good job. She works here. She has an education. And this fraud triangle is a, a way to sort of explain why this happens. And it's a, like a self-reinforcing thing. You have some financial pressure. You have some problem you need to solve. With white collar stuff, we're talking about financial stuff. So you have some financial pressure that's causing problems. And then as you're dealing with these problems, you're being crushed and you don't know what to do. Um, you suddenly see in the course of your responsibilities where you work, maybe at a bank, maybe at an insurance company, maybe wherever, you have access to systems and things that those people don't because you work in a respectable sort of job. And so now you see an opportunity that'll help you fix the problem. But you can't do that because it's bad because we don't do that kind of thing. But then as the pressure continues to crush you, you get to the point where you're like, you rationalize why it's not that bad. Why you can do that and you're different than the people who, you know, flash mob and rob, you know, when Nordstrom's or a Macy's. You're not like them. You're different because your problem is different and it's not that bad. And so you have this dumb rationalization that goes on. And so this triangle is a really good way to explain why good people, quote, good people, middle class, stable people, steal millions of dollars from folks or do awful things. And the reason why I bring this up 
is it's an example of how not to have a cartoon view of why people do bad things. You can take a cartoon view and say, uh, why do some people hate God? Micah chapter 3. Because they're just stupid and evil. That's the cartoon version. You know, they wear the orange pajamas, so they must be evil people. What's there to think about? But the real life is actually complicated. The fraud triangle is a good example of how life is complicated and people end up doing bad things because they started on a long road involving pressure and an opportunity they see and then a stupid rationalization so they can feel good about themselves for doing the bad thing. And the, what I want to talk about, uh, the reason why I mention that is because when we read Micah 3 and we see these people who don't love God and God's very upset at them, it's easy to sit here and say, these people are so stupid. They don't love God. Idiots! But it's not like they got up in the morning and said, it's a great Sunday. I can't wait to hate God and mess with people and ruin their lives. Uh, that's not the way life works. Uh, there's a chain of events that led them from wherever they used to be with God to where we find them in Micah chapter 3. And that means that that could be any one of us as we read Micah chapter 3. That's not supposed to be funny, Aries. Um, that could be any one of us. So when we read the prophets, when you read Micah chapter 3, don't read it as those people are so ridiculous. Can't believe them. You should read it as God help me to not be that way and help me point out to me through the Spirit if I am that way or I'm going that way. Don't ever read the Bible as we're better than those people back then. Read it as there but for the grace of God go I. So with that, let's get into Micah chapter 3 and 4 and see these people who are preying upon the less fortunate in God's community and talk about what God has to say about it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Please apply your word to our hearts and lives as the shoe fits, as the Spirit directs, and encourage us today. Uh, rebuke us, convict us of sin where necessary, and help us to rejoice in the hope of the better tomorrow that you paint, even in the midst of all this condemnation and frustration with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to actually, I actually lied to you. We're going to start at the end of chapter 2. Uh, Micah chapter 2, starting in verse 12. What Micah and a lot of the prophets do is they have a lot of doom and condemnation, and then they switch and he offers hope for the people who care enough to listen. And then he switches back to doom, and then he offers hope. Um, so in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, he starts off by offering uh, hope because there's a whole bunch of people listening, and some of them don't care, and some of them do. So he's like speaking to both audiences and switching off. So he says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. There's a whole bunch of people in Israel. Only some of them actually care. And God is talking to the people who care now who are like, what is this? I haven't done anything. I mean, it's just I'm not responsible for what our leaders do. I'm not responsible for that. And uh, it sounds like it really sucks to be me uh, with all this doom that, that's coming down the road. And so he's saying... I'm going to gather, even despite all of that, I'm going to gather the remnant that I've chosen. Now, my caveat from last week still applies. When you read Micah, uh, Micah spoke then to a nation of alleged believers. Some of them believed, some of them didn't, so it's like a mixed group of people. That's who Micah spoke to then. 
So when you port that over to what am I supposed to do today, Micah is speaking now to individual churches across the world. So you, you have to make that difference in your mind because Micah is saying nothing about America. So I said that last week. Uh, you, you have to get that in your mind. Micah is not talking to America because we think he's talking to Israelites in the nation of Israel. So he's talking to Christians in the nation of America. No, he's not talking to America. He's talking to believers then who comprised in God's nation. He's talking to his community now that's scattered in all the nations everywhere. So do not do Micah's talking to America as we go through this. He's talking to the people who care enough to listen in his community. He says, I'll gather you, I'll bring you back. He says, I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. What does that remind you of? What imagery does it remind you of from the New Testament of God saying, I'm a shepherd, you're my sheep, and I'm going to gather all of you together and keep you safe? What's that remind you of? What did Jesus say that reminds you of that sort of thing? John chapter 10, Jesus talking about, I am the shepherd. Uh, I hear my sheep, hear my voice. I call them, they listen to me. Uh, I'm going to protect them. None of them will be lost. This shepherd thing is a big thing with God where he pictures us as sheep who wander away, do dumb things, and himself as the shepherd, the, the, the best shepherd is going to come and gather some all over the place and bring us together and keep us safe. If you want to see where Jesus gets that from, uh, read Ezekiel 34. If you've never read it before. Ezekiel 34. But he says, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to gather everyone together and bring them back. Is that happening now? Is that happening now at all? Because if it's not happening now, then what's this have to do with you? In John chapter 10, Jesus said that he is the shepherd. Like right now, present tense, I am the shepherd. He says he's going to gather all those people together. And then he says, I have other people who aren't yet part of the flock, and I'm going to gather them too. And then there will be one flock and one shepherd. So God is gathering, God's gathering people into his community as the shepherd now. We're part of that with those evangelism ideas that are on the board over there that we've scrawled down that we'll start implementing in August. Uh, God is doing this in a small, not a small, in a, in, a, in a first stage sort of way, even now with small churches like ours, with big churches, with churches all over the world who in their own small but meaningful way are trying to bring the message of the gospel outside the doors. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They'll break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. So he pictures, so you can tell me what you think. He pictures um, himself as a shepherd gathering all these sheep. But in verse 13, where do they break out of? The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They'll break through the gate and go out. Where are the sheep being broken out of? If Jesus is our shepherd, who's come to rescue us and to bring us to a pasture that he's made to protect us, where are we breaking out of so he can lead us? What's the imagery getting at? Where are we breaking out of? What do you think? In movies, this is the fourth wall where they speak directly to the camera, so you could 
What do you, what do you think? What, what is he breaking us out of? Prison? Um, captivity? He pictures us as sheep that are bobbled up in places all over. And he, the real shepherd, is coming. And he's going to break open the way so that we can all follow him. It's like this gate that's shutting us, that's between us and him. He's going to break it down and lead, lead all of us out of these pens where we're all cooped up. He's going to lead us out to a, a new pasture land that's actually good. Their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. How many people are, are leading this flock? How many people? How many people are here? Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. It's almost like you're getting an image of two. The king, Jesus is our king, and then the Lord, it's all capitalized, which is God's divine name. This is Yahweh. You have the king who's leading them as the shepherd, the Lord at their head. Either it's using two names for the same individual, or it's talking about, it's almost giving an image of two people, sort of like a glimpse of of, of the Trinity, the Son and the Father, working together to rescue his people. But the imagery of sheep being bottled up, him rescuing us, uh, breaking us out of wherever it is we are. Ezekiel 34 is all about how they're bad shepherds. They're abusing the flock. They're crushing them. They're not feeding them. And it's just, they're all mangy and just, and just weak. And he pictures himself, God pictures himself as the good shepherd who's going to come. Get rid of all those, 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 fake leaders, and he's going to fix things. He's actually going to make things right. So there's the, for the people who care, that's a spot of light. And now he switches back to talk about what's wrong. He's going to talk first about um, two groups. He's going to talk about the leaders first. So I'm going to read verses one through, um, one through three, and then we'll talk about it. So then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot? So for you today, who are the leaders, if you wanted to apply this today, to what does that have to do with us in this new covenant community, who are the leaders of God's people today? There are no kings, princes, or anyone else over the Christian church um, here right now. Jesus is our king, but who are, the, who are the, the human leaders over God's community in this context? Who are they? Pastors. If you're part of a, for Baptists, it's usually pastors, but if you're a different denomination, there's a bureaucracy above the church, there's a regional, and then the national, and the, the whole machine and all the bureaucracy that goes along with it. Um, it's the, the whole church machinery, the whole church leadership. Um, and because now in the New Covenant, we have direct relationship, personal relationship with God in a, in a, in a much more personal way than we did in the Old Covenant. In a sense, it also means all of us, because we're directly responsible to God as well. But here, if you wanted to port this over, the leaders of the community for application to you today, you would think of the leaders of your Christian community, the pastors, the church leaders, the denominational leaders, the machine structure that makes everything happen. Okay, yeah, that's, that's good too. 
He says, he, what does he say about them in verse 2? You who what? Hate good and love evil. That's what he says about these. That's why he's upset. They're supposed to be leading the people in whatever position they happen to be in, but in, they, they, hate, they hate good and they love evil. And that's the heart of it. How do I know that I'm saved? Your internal attitude toward God and his, his, the holiness he expects of his people is the immediate barometer for whether you're, whether you're a Christian. Do you want, when you hear God's word, do you want to do it because you love him? Or is it more like, you know, what, what, what is your heart, how does your heart react? I'm not saying that whether you perfectly do it. I'm just asking, I'm asking, what, I'm asking what, what, what Micah asked in chapter two. Do not my words do good to those whose ways are upright? Remember we read David from Psalm 139. He loves to hear about God because he wants he wants God to shape him there's a difference in attitude but these people they hate good and love evil what's the imagery he gives about what they're like to all the normal people who they oppress he talks about eating my people's flesh stripping off their skin breaking their bones into pieces chopping them up like meat for the pan what's the imagery he's trying to get across so we can understand these people's character what do they sound like it's not like cannibals. What he's saying is, you guys are spiritual cannibals. You're predators, which is why Shere Khan was on the screen. They're predators. They're cannibals. That's what they're doing to these people's souls. Micah chapter 2, verse 2, he, last week, he explained what they're doing. He gave the example of the leaders who are in power using, their, using the machinery of bureaucracy to... Uh, defraud, uh, defraud people of their homes and their livelihood, their inheritances, their land, taking it all away for their own benefit. So they're leveraging their own power and, and influence for personal gain. If you want to think about today, what, do, what could church leaders, local or regional or the big machinery nationwide or worldwide or wherever, do today that earns them the description of being spiritual cannibals? There's all kinds of stuff that could go on, and I don't need to list them, but I guess the takeaway is anytime you see a pastor or a church you know, bureaucratic machine that's only interested in people as a means to an end, people are tools to be used for what they can offer and then tossed away so the brand can be built, so the church can be built, so they can be more popular, then you need to run far away from those people because they're cannibals. They don't care about you. All they care about is the brand, their profile, their, 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 their what's the word I'm looking for? Their, their brand, their infrastructure. That's all they care about. In Israel, they couldn't really want to run away. Where are they supposed to go? You, talk to, you have to go to Jerusalem. God's in Jerusalem. The, the rituals are there, you have to go to the temple. So they couldn't really run away in the Old Covenant. You just had to try and make do. In the New Covenant, you can run away because there's another kingdom community somewhere else that loves the Bible and loves Jesus. So you're fortunate because have, you have somewhere to go if you find yourself in a church that's being led by spiritual cannibals. They couldn't. We can. So he says in verse 4, 
the time's going to come when things are flipped around for these spiritual cannibals. They're going to cry out and wonder, please help me, please help me. And God says, I'm not going to listen to anything that they're going to say. So for the people that are listening who do care, who are upset about the injustice in the world, he's sort of saying, uh, they'll be taken care of. That injustice will be taken care of. That injustice will be fixed. So he switches in verse 5 and talks about group number 2, the prophets. So again, if you want to port this over, who are the prophets? Who are the teachers today in the New Covenant community? Who are they? I know, that really sucks for me. But it's like both of them are combined into one. The, the leaders and the prophets, they're all sort of combined into the, the church leadership role. But this is what they say, and think about this. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have... Ah, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They'll cover their faces because there's no answer from God. But as for me, Micah says, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. There's a lot of metaphor here. So in this one, when he talks about the prophets proclaiming peace if they have something to eat, he's using, he's, he's picturing them as, as cannibals as well, eating. Um, he's talking about, um, he's given this imagery of them um, prophesying whatever they want as long as they're paid. Micah 2.11 talks about, um, oh no, that's the wrong verse. Anyway. He's using a metaphor for them, uh, for them being paid for what they're doing. Um, the, the imagery is basically like some sort of, um, some, ah, it's supposed to be 311. Uh, her leaders judge for a bribe and her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money. So he's using this feeding metaphor to get across. They'll tell you whatever you want as long as you give them money, as long as you give them what they want they'll miraculously produce some sort of teaching that you like, so you'll stay and continue giving them money. This doesn't have to be like this, this, this explicit arrangement. It's probably more unspoken, where it's sort of understood that you give gifts and things to the prophets, and miraculously, they somehow continue to just tell you everything you want to hear, so you never, you never have to conform yourself to anything. You can just do whatever you want, because you keep giving them gifts and money and presents, and they conveniently just keep always telling you everything is great, everything is great, everything is great. And instead of, instead of teaching what God, how God wants people to be and being teachers, they're just mercenaries. They'll just, they'll, they'll just say whatever they need to say to make you happy so they continue to get money, get presents, get favors, and everyone just drifts further and further from anything that's holy and that's good. Yeah, it's like a power sort of thing. And uh, they, they want to stay there, so they tell you what you want to hear. That kind, of thing, that kind of thing still happens today. They want to stay there, so they tell you, they tell you what you want to hear. And he says the time's going to come when, um, when all of that's going to go away, because I'm, I'm going to shut it down, essentially, and start over. So in verse 9, he sort of sums up 
his problems with both of them. He says, hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders, as I read before, leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price. And this is the shocking part here. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will overcome us. That's the heart attitude. It's the attitude of someone says, you know, I'll cheat, on, I'll cheat on my wife and just tell God I'm sorry later. It's okay. Now, what kind of heart is that, right? What kind of heart is that? We'll just say we're sorry later. Let's do it. Yeah, come on. But that's, that's what they're saying. So they can do all of this. And then somehow they actually believe that the Lord's among us. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be fine. It's, it's, it's going to be fine. So that's why I said you can either look at these people as just cartoon characters. Oh, they're evil and stupid. They're leaders of Israel equals evil and stupid. No problem. Or you can say, what happened to these people? Could it happen to me? Unless you think they're just really evil and stupid, but we're not. I mean, we're all people. Something happened to them to where they are where they are because they actually believe this. And that's the weird thing. They actually believe it. What happened to make them that way? That they're so deluded. Have you ever spoken to someone who's so deluded with something and they don't really, it's like, do you hear yourself? And you're like, what ha what's happening that's, that's, that you actually think this? This is what's happening with them. And they actually believe it. How did it get that way? Which is what we need to think about. We'll come to that later. They actually believe that. He says, verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem will just be this heap of rubble. So they're focusing all their time and saying, the temple's here, the Lord's here, everything will be fine. It's like God is like this magic totem. As long as I've got the magic totem, you know, hanging around here somewhere, everything will be fine. It's like they never thought that God could just be like, you know, I could just leave, right? You know, I could just go. And then the Lord won't be there among you. If you read Ezekiel 8 through 10, this imagery of God leaving the Holy of Holies, and as he leaves, he looks around and shows Ezekiel all the stuff that's going on in the temple. And he just leaves. His glory is departed. And as they're saying this, it's as though they, they don't realize that God could just be like, yeah, I'm just leaving. And then what's going to happen? They never even thought about that. It's like churches that are led by spiritual cannibals. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus... Jesus talks all the time about how, you know, I could just take your candlestick or your lampstand away. You know, I'll just, I'll just take it away. I, have other, I can start another church somewhere. You know, uh, I don't need this church. If you don't do what you're supposed to, I'll just take the candlestick away. And I'll just stick it somewhere else. It's like people don't seem to realize, you know, the, uh, God can just shift. But they actually say this and they actually believe it. And that's the shocking part. So, lot of doom. Last chapter, we'll go quicker. Totally different feeling. This is now for the people who are listening to this and are thinking, man, this really sucks. So now, he says something very comforting and very helpful. He says, uh, he has good things to say. As you read your Bible, you should ask yourself, if you want to know what you should do with what you're reading, what should you do with Micah chapter Four, chapter 3. Uh, as you read this, you should ask yourself, why is God telling people this? 
What's God doing with what he's saying? I used the example before. If, if my wife tells me that the garbage is full, she's really saying take out the garbage. It's sort of implicit. It's there. And when I was much younger, I wouldn't take the hint, and then I would be in a lot of trouble. But now I've been trained, so now when she says things like that, I know what she's really saying. It's sort of the dots just connect instantly. So when God talks about his leaders who are awful and people who don't care, what does he want us to do? He wants us to make sure we're not like that. He wants us to think, is that me? Am I going down that road? Now he's going to talk about the future. He's going to talk about the future. And so what's he supposed to, what are we supposed to do with this? He wants us to read this and say, there will be a day when everything is fixed and everything is better. And no matter how wrong things are now, God says, it's going to work out in the end. And the surprising part about this is going to say, it's not going to work out in the end just for the remnant. It's also going to work out for people who hate me, but are going to decide to love me. I'm going to decide to love them and they'll love me in return. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. It's God doesn't just say, whoever likes me is going to have a treat. He goes out and changes the minds of people who hate him and then brings them into his family. And he doesn't have to. Who wants to go talk to people who hate them? But God sent his son to come here to bring the message to everyone who hates him because no one likes him. Their minds and hearts have to be changed so they will like him. So this is the, the beautiful imagery he gives us. In the last days, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. So we went from Zion will be like this garbage pit rubble field to in the last days, everything's fixed, everything's new, everything's better. And then all kinds of people are just streaming to it like they were to the air show at, Fort, at JBLM yesterday. And maybe today, flooding I-5, all coming to the air show. I stayed home. But uh, everyone's coming to God's city. So here's where the prophets talk on on two levels and as we let me give the analogy of, of a movie um, when you watch a movie when you're done with the movie you can look back at things that happened before and they make more sense or there's some deeper shades that you didn't see because the movie wasn't over then but now it's over and then you look back you're like aha that and that and that leads to that and so things it's not like things change but now you understand it better so now on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the new covenant, 2,000 years into the new covenant, we can look back at Micah and we can see that he's talking on, on two levels. Directly, he's talking to the nation of Israel, giving them real promises that are going to be fulfilled in the future. But he's also talking about his community now before all that happens. It's like plateaus. Micah just looks and he sees something out there. But when you get closer, there's all sorts of hills and everything in between. It still gets there, but there's stuff that happens between, between that vista that you can't see from where you were. So he says, many nations on that day, these are the people who don't want anything to do with him, who he's going to bring into his family anyway. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What does that have to do with us today? Does that have anything to do with us today? Should we care? 
In John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, and she says, you know, we worship God on this mountain, you worship God on the other mountain, so where's the right place where God's people are actually supposed to worship? She's like having one of those debates with Jesus. And Jesus said, well, you know, uh, the time is coming um, when you're not going to worship the Father on any mountain, this mountain, that mountain, Mount Rainier, no mountain. It won't even matter. The place won't matter. The place won't matter at all. He says, uh, the time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshipers who the Father seeks. And so he's, what he's saying is, there's going to come a day when Jerusalem won't matter, where Samaria won't matter. Going to a central place to do all these rituals won't matter the, because the shape of the relationship is changing and it's changed now as I'm standing here talking to you. Now, instead of going to a specific place, you just need to worship the Lord with your heart only because worship isn't tied to Jerusalem. Instead of worshiping God by loving him and then going through the ritual sacrifices to have atonement and forgiveness and have it refreshed all the time, now you just worship the Lord through spirit and truth. Jesus is the truth. So Jesus has taken those categories of the way we worship and where we worship, and he sort of absorbed them into himself and saying, the time is coming and is now here where you worship me, you worship God through me in spirit and truth. You don't have to go to a specific place. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to bring a sacrifice in your minivan to church on, on Sunday. You don't have to do any of that. None of that. So looking backward, now that the movie's much further along than it was when Micah wrote, when we see stuff like the nations will come and they'll say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, let's go to the temple of Jacob so we can teach us on one level, what he seems to be saying also is talking about, talking about the evangelism that goes on in the New Covenant. Are people coming to the Lord, to the temple, who's Jesus, to the temple to hear about the Lord, to be taught his ways so they can walk on his paths? Is the word going out from Jerusalem? Since Peter and James and John and all the rest of the disciples were his witnesses beginning in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In a, in, in, in a real sense, this is, start, this is going on now, waiting for a final and cataclysmic's the wrong word, um, world-encompassing uh, outflow of evangelism that'll happen in the future during the millennium. But what I'm saying is, this isn't just something that is for later that you don't need to care about. Jesus is doing this now. Jesus is reaching people now who are coming to the temple. Jesus is the temple, who wanted to know his ways and walk in his paths. The word of the Lord is going out from Jerusalem, who Jesus is sort of shifted to himself now because he's the center of worship. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet God. Verses 3 through 5, he shades over into the millennium, um, talking about peace and um, the nations being at peace with one another, um, armies being dismantled because there's no need to fight anymore because there's no one to fight anymore. And in verses... Um, Verse 6, he shifts over from people who don't know who he is to the last bit we're going to look at. And he talks about, well, what about the believers who've been waiting this whole time and are set 
who are discouraged, who need encouragement. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I'll gather the lame, I'll assemble the exiles to those and those I've brought to grief. I'll make the lame, I'll make the lame my remnant. Yes, I should have shown that before. I'll make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Why does God call his people who have been waiting for a long time and who are wanting something better to come? Why does he call them, why does he call them sheep that are lame? What's that supposed to mean? He doesn't mean that you know, we're losers. That's not the lame he's talking about. So what's he, what's he getting at with how we're, I'll gather the lame. I'll assemble the exiles and those I've brought to grief. Why does he call his people lame? Yeah, because they're hurting, because they're discouraged, because they're they're wounded, um, uh, because they're 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 hurting, they're they're struggling, and so what God is saying there is He shifts and talks about not just the people who's going to reveal Himself to and come to faith, but the people who are waiting faithfully in sometimes really awful circumstances. Is He saying I sort of saying I see. I see what you're going through, and I know what your condition is. He calls them exiles. Peter says that we're exiles too. He uses the same language. He talks about the, the, those who've been brought to grief, who are struggling, who are maybe becoming bitter, who are upset, who are frustrated, who are waiting anxiously for something better than what we have in this life. The Apostle Paul said, through much tribulation, we'll only enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. He promises to make, to make his remnant, to make a strong nation out of those who he, who he, who've been driven away. Skipping down to verse 9, he says, Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? The pain That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field sort of painting a picture of, that's true, but now, in the meantime, a lot of, a lot of bad things are about to happen. What, what, does God, what does God say to people? He tells them the image of the future, but right now the, the immediate future looks pretty bleak. What does he, what's he say about that? What's, what's, what, what does he tell us to do as we wait? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? He talks about being like exiled from his city and sort of wandering around like starving sheep in a field somewhere. He says, you will go to Babylon. There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. That's the two-level thing. On one level, he could be saying, I'm going to bring you back from Babylon, which he did years later. Uh, but on another level, we can think of ourselves the Apostle Peter said we're exiles. Hebrews 3 and 4 says that we're like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and we need to be faithful so we can enter the rest of the promised land when our wandering is over. Babylon throughout the Bible is talked about as Babylon, but it's also an image for evil, for wickedness, for a bad place that's a whole lot different than the better tomorrow that God's going to bring. And so... 
what answer does he give for us as we wait for all this good stuff to happen? He doesn't offer up a prosperity gospel. He only promises that if we faithfully endure, he will rescue us from Babylon, from this world, because he has a better kingdom and a better world waiting for us. If we can stay faithful, if we stay salty, like we talked about last week, if we stay as Jesus people, if we don't assimilate and become absorbed by the world and become just like everyone else, but we stay being Jesus people who live and act and think differently than the world around us, if we try to stay holy because he's holy, like the Apostle Peter said, then he will rescue us from Babylon. He will redeem us, buy us back from the hands of our enemies and bring us safely to the promised land through the wilderness that we're wandering in right now. He goes on and talks about this great reversal that's going to happen. All the nations that are persecuting Israel. But one day, he says, things will be different. He says in verse 13, Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I'll give you horns of iron, I'll give you hooves of bronze, and you'll break to pieces many nations. You'll devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. This is the last verse we're going to look at, then we'll talk about the lesson God has for us. Is anywhere in the Bible does it talk about how Israel is going to destroy and kill all the nations? So what is he saying here? In what way is Israel going to crush her enemies and break them into pieces? What's he talking about here? What way, now that the story, on, on, in light of the whole story that we can see of the scripture, how does God conquer his enemies today? Does he tell us to go around with the sword and, and threaten, or the gun and threaten people with death if they convert, or force Christianity on people? How does God conquer his enemies in the new covenant? He conquers his enemies with the gospel. He conquers his enemy with the gospel, the message of love, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. The gospel has nothing to do with threat of force or any forced compulsion. There's a veil that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that needs to be removed from our hearts so the gospel light can shine in. And that's, this, that's the passage. Doom, gloom. Doom, gloom talking to whichever audience wants to listen. What are you supposed to do with this? Two things. There's a lesson and there's a warning. As you read it, Micah, are you supposed to leave here today and go to lunch saying, well, it sucks to be them. Anyway, what's for lunch? What are you supposed to do when you leave here? In the Old Covenant, their job was to hold on to stay what they were meant to be and wait for Jesus, wait for the Messiah. Hold on, be faithful, wait for the Messiah. So we had someone who was ready to take up the mantle of the mission when he arrived. The new covenant community, our job is the same thing, but we're a, further, we're a little further along in the story. We're not waiting for the first ad. We're not waiting for his first coming. We're waiting for his second coming. So let me give you the analogy of a Polaroid. Some people don't know what a Polaroid is. I loved Polaroids, so they were so cool. So you take the picture, and then you wait, and it spits out, and you stare at it, and it slowly comes into focus. So if you think of a Polaroid, in the Old Covenant, in Micah's day, they were waiting for the picture to be taken. In our day, we have the picture in our hand, we're waiting for it 
to develop so we can see exactly what it looks like. It's the same community, the same mission. We're just in different phases. They're waiting for the picture. We're, the picture has been taken for us. We're just waiting for it to be developed. What do we do while we wait for the Polaroid to be developed? What are you supposed to do with Micah chapter three and all of this here as you, as you sit here today? I think that one thing the Old Testament shows us is that um, until Jesus comes back, his community is always going to fall short somewhere, sometimes really catastrophically, like Micah chapter 3 and some of the churches in Revelation, uh, but sometimes not so catastrophically, but it's never going to be what it's supposed to, totally what it's supposed to be. But the shepherd is gathering his flock, even today, and he's leading us to the promised land, even through the messiness of some really imperfect kingdom communities. So what should you do about this? Are the leaders at the church where you attend or attended in the past or attend in the future, are they spiritual cannibals? You need to leave. There's no reason to stay at a place where you are just a means to an, to an end that has nothing to do with Jesus. When you, wherever you happen to go to church in the past, now, or in the future, do the leaders challenge people with Jesus or do they just tell people, what they want to hear. You know, a business or a college has to care about its constituency, so they, they're sort of stuck, because if they tell the truth, they'll make people bad and they'll take their business elsewhere. Is Jesus the church's constituency, or is it something else? No matter what they say, is it actually something else? Do the people try and love one another in the, in the, in the, in the church? whatever church you're going to. Do the people try to, I'm not saying, I'm not saying someone took my seat one day. I'm saying, do people try to love one another? Is, is, that, is that a focus? Do the people believe and practice and teach justice and righteousness and the gospel and its implications for our lives? Or is the church just a social club? Or is it all fake? Um, what, what's, the, what's the feel of the place? Is it about Jesus? It is, a, is it a Jesus community or is it just something else. God never talks about programs or the size of the congregation or the facility. He wants to know, is it a Jesus community that's trying to be a countercultural light for the gospel in a dark world? Does it want to show and tell the message to the community? In the old covenant, they couldn't go somewhere else. They couldn't go across the street. You can go across the street. You can go somewhere else. You don't have to stay somewhere where you're being led and taught by spiritual cannibals. The warning is the next part. The warning, oh, I was supposed to put that up there before. The warning is the next part, which is probably the most um, pressing one. Is this us? Why are the leaders and the prophets acting like this? Are they just cartoon villains or did something happen to them along the way? There's three types of people who have no idea who God is. First is people who admit they don't know him and don't care, like Romans 1. Don't know him, don't care, whatever. Who cares? The second are externalists, people who pretend to know him, but they don't really care either. They're just external. Yeah, I love God and nothing. There's nothing there. The third are legalists, moralists, self-righteous people, people who think they know him the best, but they really don't know him at all. That's why... After talking about all the people who don't care about God in Romans 1, 
In Romans chapter 2, Paul talked about the religious people who followed all these laws and everything, and he said, well, you do the same thing as the folks in Romans 1, because you're, you're, you're legalists. Whether you don't care about God and you just are honest, or whether you're a legalist, you're both in the same bucket. No one loves God. Three people who have no idea who God is. In the Old Testament, externalism was the problem. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Mike is what Mike is dealing with. Yeah, I believe God. Anyway, let's see whose house we can steal tomorrow. Jesus' day, they overcorrected and became legalists. We're going to make sure we follow every single rule. Every single rule. Get the checklist out. That way we'll never be externalists again. So nobody wakes up one day and decides to be an externalist or a legalist. There's something that happened, some rationalization, some drifting away that happened that made these people into what they've become. And so little by little, whatever the rationalization happens to be, they drift away. We drift away from loving God and end up grounding our boat on being externalists and loving God becomes this boring routine that we just do with no heart. Or it be, becomes about self-righteous performance. So the warning as we read Micah 3 in any of the prophets is to not say, those people are so dumb, but to say, am I sure, are we sure that we actually love God, his gospel, his son? Do we, want, do we work on our relationship with God, or is it more like this cold and stale marriage? What's our relationship with God like? Because as soon as love starts to go, you start drifting away. No matter what stuff you do on the outside, you start drifting away. Paul said in Romans 13.10 that love was the fulfillment of the law. The basis, the foundation, the assumption for everything you do for God is that you love him because he first loved you. And then you'll want to do what he says. And then you'll want to know more about him. Are we drifting away from love? What shore are we drifting towards and what are we going to do about it? As we read Micah 3, Say, Lord, am I in danger of being like this? How do I grow closer to you? How do I love you more? How do I, how do I make sure? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, all that stuff is written so we could you know, not make their mistakes. How do I not make that mistake? It's always the other guy who's in danger. It's never us. Well, what God's asking us implicitly is saying, is this you? Is this you? It's not always the other guy. Sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's me. Is it you? That's what he wants us to think about, this warning from this passage. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to know you more. Help us to love you. Help us to, help us to think about whether this passage is speaking to us. Not about other people, because it's always about other people, but whether it's actually speaking to us about our life, our heart, our mind, our situation. And apply your word by the power of your spirit uh, as the shoe, as the shoe happens to fit. And only you, most of all, know if it needs to and where it needs to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.